Bloody Elbow presents the MMA Vivisection, the show that gives you a comprehensive breakdown and expert analysis of all the fights happening on this week's UFC prelims card. Paid Bloody Elbow Podcast Substack subscribers will hear bonus content, if available, at the end of the broadcast. Be sure to subscribe at bloodyelbow.substack.com for our newsletter and at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com for our podcast network. Follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloodyelbowblog, and as always, on bloodyelbow.com. Thanks for listening. Here are your hosts, Bloody Elbow fight analysts Zane Simon and Connor Rebush. Hey everybody, welcome back to the MMA video section with me, Zane Simon, and my co-hosts, as always... Connor Rebush. We are here once again talking about UFC 288 going down at the Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey, headlined by a bantamweight title fight between Aljamain Sterling and Henry Cejudo. We are talking about the prelim card right now with a featured prelim between Drew Dober and Matt Frivola. And a prelims that are mostly good and a lot of fun. Like... Sure, the early ones have a bunch of random dudes that we had to learn about. Um, but the actual ESPN Plus prelim card is a pretty fun prelim card. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. how you should tier it, right? You have the the guys that you don't know all the way at the bottom, the guys you do know in the middle, and then the the stars and the hot prospects and whatever at the top. Mm-hmm. And the price we had to pay is that next week we get a fight night headlined by Jarsenia Rosenstreich. <laughs> uh, That's the price we had to pay. Yeah. For yeah. a decent undercard. Uh, yeah, I, I can't really complain, honestly. No. I mean, I, I don't even care if uh, you get the early prelims. Like, yeah, there's it's prelims. There's supposed to be a few guys. I don't know who the hell they are. Yep. It's just when that's the uh, bulk of the card that it becomes. It's that when you get Song versus Simone, where you're like, "Oh, awesome, yeah. awesome main event fight," and then we are at the early prelims and nothing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm pretty happy with this, and I'm pretty happy that the featured fight here is a uh, a Drew Dober matchup. It's yeah, in fact, what is becoming the classic Drew Dober matchup, which is uh, one which basically offers him no advantage other than getting to deliver the kind of fun fight he clearly loves to deliver. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that's, you know, if I was arguing last week that they shouldn't treat uh, Julian Arosa the way they did by putting him in that, for, with that Fernando Padilla fight. I mean, I know that that wasn't what was originally booked. And uh, I think Padilla was stepping in as a replacement for, uh, or was he stepping in as a replacement? No, I, I guess he wasn't. No. No idea. Yeah. Okay, never mind. But, you know, if, if I feel like Julian Arosa shouldn't be fighting somebody like Fernando Padilla, and it's a waste to put him in those kind of fights, Drew Dober, Matt Frivola, like, this is exactly what I would be arguing you should do with fighters in this position. Keep them right in the middle of your cards as guaranteed thrillers in fun fights that they're always going to thrill. Yeah, and it's what Dober wants. I mean, he yeah. said as much after his last fight, didn't he? He's like, uh, I don't, he was like all these other people, like they just avoid fights. Yeah. I don't, I don't get it. Like, I don't care. I just want to have thrilling fights with absolutely anyone. Yeah. Um, which it's, it was what respect. Made, it's what made Donald Cerrone so great at the height of his run. Yeah. It is what made Angela has made Angela Hill a mainstay. It is. Yeah. There is a place for it in the ecosystem and, you know, especially with an organization like the UFC that is creating so much filler, like 
you you should be tre- you know they should be treasuring these kinds of fighters because 100%. a Drew Dober fight never feels like filler. Whatever Drew Dober is getting paid, it is not enough. And yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate that like accepting these kinds of fights means he's he's probably never going to reach that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think the other thing is that Drew Dober has kind of gotten over it. It seems with uh. Yeah, I mean the, the 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 thing with this kind of thing is too is that like we've seen with Cerrone, like we've seen with other fighters that go down this path, you put if you can if you take a bunch of these fights and you put together five wins in a row all of a sudden, you get that one shining moment to test yourself up at the top, mm-hmm. and maybe it doesn't work out and you just go right back to fighting anyone and everyone, but you know. That's like you could do a whole lot worse than being Jim Miller out there is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I at least Drew Dober seems happy with it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely. He's a guy who should just be getting like half a mil per fight minimum just because he always delivers. He will take whatever fight you give to him. And people finally seem to be learning who he is. Yeah. And possibly turning up in part to see a Drew Dober fight. You know, it's yeah. going to be fire. Like I said, I, I, you in a, in a sea of UFC filler fights, in a sea of uh, Braxton Smith versus Parker Porter. Right. I have never, in the past couple, few years, looked at a Drew Dober fight and thought, "Oh, well, you know, that's on there too." Yeah. No. Like, Every good Drew Dober's yeah. fighting, and yeah. uh, to that to that uh, point, a matchup with Matt Frivola, boy, is it going to be a Drew Dober fight? Yeah, man, this will be. This will be a banger, start to finish. Yeah, I think the only possible uh, concern here is what if this is the one in five fights where Matt Frivola looks like the other Sarah Longo fighters? Yeah. And has a good game plan. Yeah. Um, because it could be one of those fights where he looks to really test Rudover's wrestling. Sure. Which is, can wrestle. He can be aggressive on the front foot and change things up constantly and wrestle yeah. and make a fight hell for somebody. Yeah. Andrew Dober's defensive wrestling is solid, but not ironclad at all. Yeah. You chase it down far enough. It breaks. Mm-hmm. So it could be that kind of fight. I think even if he tries that, he is going to be put under immediate intense pressure by Drew Dober. And probably like Matt Rovola also likes to bang it out with people. Mm-hmm. And when he gets hit, that just kind of happens, whether it was the game plan or not. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure the game plan in his last two fights was not have an insane war in which each of you knocks each other down right away. Yeah. But uh, Matt Rovola gets sucked very easily into those kinds of fights. He loves um, it. Clearly loves it. He loves yeah. to brawl. And, and so does Drew Dober. And... Um, I mean, who knows? It could be really crazy. Like dope. The other thing about Dober's recent fights is that he keeps getting knocked down early. Yeah. He like Terrence McKinney almost finished him. Um, Rafael Alves hit him super hard early. Like Bobby Green was Bobby Green was starting to kind of cruise on him and he had to he had to force his way back into the fight. Thing with McKinney and Alves, though, is that they are insanely fast just faster than 95% of the division yes in a way that Frivola is decidedly not yeah and even so Drew Dober was able to come back against both of them the way he does it is lots and lots of pressure 
uh, super aggressive uh, defense. Mm-hmm. So like uh, Drew Dober, very good at getting under shots and coming surging back in with combinations. He works the body. He's just a super hard puncher. And um, is is I don't know if there's anybody who's more comfortable and composed in the pocket right yeah. now than than Drew Dober, even when he is the one getting hit cleaner. So you have to pick Drew. You do. He's going to get a Drew Dober fight, and he's just more reliable in that kind of matchup. But uh, it's not like Favola isn't going to have chances because we've seen he, he he's pretty goddamn dangerous and absolutely down to brawl. And again, he may have an out that Drew Dober will not be prepared for, even if they do start brawling. Yeah. He might get caught by surprise with just a sudden uh, level change. And Favola is a pretty damn good grappler as well. So, yes, he's just not a great control fighter. No, that's he, he loves to fight. He loves to to work and make things happen too much. Yeah. To ever just be like, oh, I got somebody down now. I'm just going to control them. Right. And so even if he does get takedowns, it feels very much like, you know, he could he could get a takedown and put Dover on the on the on the map for a full minute. And then the next round's going to start and you're not going to trust Matt Favola to go out there and just chase another takedown and hold Drew Dober down. He's yeah. going to go out there and go back to war with him. And if he has to take it, if he has to shoot in the middle of that war, he will. But the first thought for Matt Favola is always let's go to war and have fun. So. Yeah, I, I feel like you you do have to take Drew Dober here. Um, when when he's lost those kinds of fights, they've still been razor thin. They've still felt felt absolutely brutal, like his fight with Brad Riddell. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and otherwise, yeah, you've had to be. A, or his fight with Nick Hine too, even going way back to before Drew Dober became Drew Dober as we know him now. Mm-hmm. Um. Otherwise, yeah, you have to be able to outgrapple him and like really stick to that grappling game and force him into deep into situations where he has to start making mistakes. Yeah. And um, to be fair to Drew, like the guys who have successfully done that, pretty much some of the best wrestler grapplers in the in the division. Yeah. Like Islam Makachev, Benil Darius, Olivia Alba, and Mercier. Brad Riddell is actually quite a good wrestler and it allowed him to survive, but he yeah. wasn't really able to out-wrestle Drew Dober. It does no. tend to take a pretty damn good wrestler to actually win that way. Yep. And Frivola's been knocked out too many times for me to just be like, yep. oh yeah, this is this is a this is a bona fide strategy for you to climb this division. Knocking out Atman Zaitar and Gennaro Valdez are the first steps to conquering the rest of the lightweights, right. you know? So, yeah, got to take Drew Dober here. Odds on the fight. Dober is the favorite, opened at minus 210 or so, and has jumped up and down a little bit to minus 190, minus 215, but he's right back at minus 210 at the moment. Matt Frivola opened at plus 162 and is currently at plus uh, 175 or so. So... Maybe 185. Getting a little wider on the Matt Frivola side of things, staying pretty pat on the Drew Dover side of things. It just, yeah, I don't expect these lines to move off that too much with Dover as a solid favorite in a fight that is likely to get very wild and sloppy and give both men opportunities. 
That brings us to a light heavyweight bout. Kennedy Zichukwu against Devin Clark. And um, this is kind of a weird fight because Devin Clark is insanely beatable provided that you don't just take Devin Clark's fight to Devin Clark. And I'm not 100% sure how much Zuchukwu can avoid that fight. Because, like, Daun Jung should have been able to beat Devin Clark. That was a fight very much made for him to win. Yeah. But he decided that he wanted to try to out-wrestle and out-clinch Clark. And he just couldn't. Clark was too strong. And Zuchukwu is he's tall, he's lanky, he is a hard-nosed clinch fighter who gets better as the fight goes on and can really chase and pressure people as the fight goes. But he's not a range fighter at all. He's not comfortable at distance. And he is only comfortable, really, when he's pushing forward and getting a chance to physically dominate people. Yeah. Which he might just not be able to do to Devin Clark. There's a chance. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm going to pick Zuchukwu because he does get stronger as fights go, go on, and Clark is not a finisher. So there's going to be a lot of opportunity for Zuchukwu to grow into this fight as it goes. But I'll be lying if I said I was just really comfortable with the idea of Zuchukwu starting every fight, trying to or starting every round, trying to walk Clark down and clinch up with him and being like, yeah, I'll, I'll win out in this test of strength over time. I mean, I don't think that's the only way in Zuchukwu fights, though. Yeah. He, you know, he he will walk out there and and try to smother people at times. He will also just like, um, he will also just hunt people down, like using his reach with like a pressure striking game. He doesn't necessarily have to tie up with everybody. Uh, he was out there putting volume on Nikolai Negamariano. Sure, um, fair. He put tons of striking volume on Carlos Olberg. Um. Yeah, I just think, like, Zetchukwu is a fighter with a plan, and Devin Clark isn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, Devin Clark has one plan, and it's a very poorly composed one. What is it? How would you even describe his plan? It's like... His plan is to physically bully, and just to, like, if, you know, if he's not going to wrestle, he wants to just land one shot at a time and scare you off. So that Yeah. You, and then if he is going to wrestle then he's just going to wrestle and try to hold you and put you on the cage and, you know, hit you with strikes, not necessarily control all that well on the ground, but just make his physicality count all the time in single situations. Yeah. It's just, you know, there's so much, so much gap between each situation Devin Clark creates. Yeah. I mean, Devin Clark's, whatever plan he might have, the difficulty for him executing it and sticking to it will always be that um, he just it does not have technique. Yeah. Like, that's it. He's, he's a very physical fighter. He's super tough. But, like, he has no technical foundation. Yeah. 
He doesn't have, you know, any idea of, of like positioning or footwork. He doesn't have any idea of like building combinations. He doesn't have defense. No grappling. Like, yeah. He just like smashes into people and, and hopes that he's stronger than them or tougher than them. Yeah. Um, Tetsuku is a surprisingly strong fighter. He's huge. Mm-hmm. And I think even if he ends up in Devin Clark's fight, I would kind of favor him to just actually try different things out. Yeah, find enough moments. Do, right. do, do enough things with somebody pressing him with the same fight over and over. Yeah. Uh, it, it really should be a test. He can, he, the, the, the Chukwu can pass. It should have just been a, a test that Don Jung can pass as well. Like, that was really... Uh, that just kind of threw me. You know, I have to remind myself that fighters who can absolutely beat Devin Clark don't always... Yeah, just because he is strong and he he's tough, and even when he's tired, he will fight exactly as hard. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So, but he's not actually good. No, no, I I do have to pick the Chukwu. Yeah, same. The Chukwu is the favorite here. Opened at minus two seventeen. Currently at minus. Uh, 180 Clark opened at plus 182 currently down at plus 163 so odds slowly getting tighter but I would expect to maintain a reasonable favorite status all the way through that brings us to a welterweight bout Chaos Williams Rolando Bedoya and uh uh-huh. Yeah, this is kind of one of those fights that made up all of last week's card. Yeah, you know, enough guys. You got enough guys, UFC. Yeah. Rolando Bedoya, like wh- I a lot of guys they sign. I'm like, what is the idea? Mm-hmm. What compelled the you know, Joe Silva was an evil little motherfucker, but <laughs> he, he, wasn't he was very like much yeah, grand master, I have a plan. His whole thing was very much the UFC should only be the best fighting the best, which is why if you lost one or two fights, you just get cut. Yeah. Matchups like this really feel indicative of like the the culture, the the, the sea change in like the UFC's matchmaking philosophy. Like probably on the one hand, there's just too many cards for even two matchmakers to stay on top of. That's the other thing about Joe Silva is like, um, he's like he's a psychopath yeah so like he was just i i think he would just accept all the work that was put onto his plate like gleefully he's like oh i get more toys yep um you know the ufc's got two experienced matchmakers as far as i know it's still just shelby and maynard i think there might be a third now okay but But i think part of it is like there's just too many events and they just don't care yeah they're just like oh we need a fight here's a guy yeah, and and the ESPN requirements That's and the, other thing. the money of the involved in those requirements is just forced. That's the other thing. It's like let's just get, let's just get some cheap goons because we just gotta fill cards. That's actually the priority. Yeah, I mean, Rolando Bedoya looks. He's a fun fighter. Yeah, he's fine. It's a lot of fun. He's like a he's a fun offensive fighter with absolutely dreadful defense, mm-hmm. which is a surefire recipe for exciting fights. But um, 
Oh my god! I just noticed. I'm watching his uh, fight against uh, Pablo Dorta mm-hmm. from FFC 49, and one of Dorta's cornermen just has his shirt off. Never seen that before. <laughs> <laughs> Never seen the cornermen just stripped to the waist. We need more cornering in MMA. That's like, you know, uh, Street Fighter or yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like Tekken style, where you've got like just the people clinging onto the cage, and they all have sunglasses and like <laughs> jean shorts and no shirts yeah no shirts and like a mohawk or like super spiky blonde hair and yeah. they're just like cling to the side of the cage yelling the whole time that's that's what we need more of in mma oh it looks like the guy who's cornering him had a fight that evening he's wearing wraps oh okay. probably fought just before and just didn't get changed yeah. and came right out to corner okay yep. respect yep Anyway, uh, yeah, but Doya's fun. He's fun for a lot of the wrong reasons. I mean, he's yeah. he's a real he's really scrappy, but he's really messy. He puts himself in terrible positions. He can't turn down an exchange, even if he's losing them. Um, and it, to be fair, it's not like Chaos Williams is all that good. No, he's incredibly sloppy and wild, and just basically. You know, we were talking about Gilbert Burns on the main card of the sort of like, I've decided what I'm going to throw and I'm just going to leap in and, and throw that thing. Yeah. But Burns has been doing that for years under good guidance of a good striking coach to pick good things. Yeah. Uh, Chaos Williams is very much on the left, right, left, right, left. Uh, just decide, make my make my decision to swarm ahead with head punches only, and throw you know four of them and then get out. Yeah, but what Chaos Williams does have is absolutely massive power. And yes, that is one of those things that will be a tremendous out for you, even if you are like technically on pretty even footing. Bedoya, higher output, but also not a great technician and super vulnerable to get encountered. So it's also notable that Chaos Williams blitz blitzing style is also is built on cage holding too. just on like I will I will push you backwards and if I and get you to the fence and just lean on you there as my safety valve to, you know, build myself up to do this all again. And Bedoya is really bad about just getting back straight up. Yeah. So even if he doesn't get, you know, even if he doesn't get knocked out or hurt super bad by Williams's charge, he's very likely just going to get suckered into exactly the kind of fight that Williams can make himself that, that lets him have this kind of fight for three rounds that he used to beat Matthew Semmelsberger, you know, by decision. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like a fight that, you know, sure. But I mean, Bedoya could, he could sit in the pocket and land one big shot that knocks Williams out. I guess, I guess we're kind of still waiting on that because it hasn't actually happened yet. Yep. Williams has been in some pretty scrappy fights. He appears to be pretty durable. Yep. And uh, he's not that creative, but uh, but you have keep to looking for that one big shot. Game. You know, yeah. you have to make him do something else, and I don't see Bedoya making him do something else. No, exactly. Odds on the bout. Bedoya opened at plus 231, is currently at plus 264. 
and Williams opened at minus 280 and is currently minus 313. So, yeah, that was all. I mean, that feels right. This should just be everybody should be picking Williams until proved otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I think the prevailing feeling about this matchup should be uh, why is it happening? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. This does not also also does not appear to be a fight that was made as something else first and then changed. Nope. They just they just throw these fights together nowadays. Yeah. So eh, whatever. Chaos Williams in the Julian Arosa in the Drew Dober met mold like he beat Alex Morono. Alex Morono the good fighter. Mm-hmm. Beat Abdul Razak Al Hassan. Al Hassan is a fun fighter all the time, at the very least, is yeah, a, it's certainly a, a stiff challenge for anybody. A stiff challenge for anybody. He he lost to Michelle Pereira. That's fine. Michelle Pereira is actually proving himself to be pretty good over time. Yep. He, he beat Matthew Semmelsberger. Semmelsberger has had a lot of success. He beat Miguel Baeza when that meant something still. And then he lost a very close fight to Randy Brown, who is a very decent, scrappy, middle-of-the-pack welterweight. Mm-hmm. Throw him in more of those fights. Have him fight Warley Alves. Have him fight... Uh, oh, what's his name? The Australian kid who is... Jake. Jake uh, Matthews. Yeah. Have him fight Jake Matthews. Have him fight... You know, who, who Tim means. I want to hear but, what was the description you were going to give me when you couldn't think of Jake Matthews game. The Australian kid who. Who seems like he's getting better, but isn't. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> I knew I wanted, I knew I wanted to hear the end of that sentence. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's either that or who had no personality until he found the worst one. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually Jake Matthews has a really interesting personality. He should lean more into, which is um, white Australian Muslim guy. <laughs> seriously he's like really into islam is he did you know, did you know that yeah oh. he, he, he he's like a born again muslim who like converted pretty late in life and is like really really into it really Jake which is Matthews. which is kind of interesting right like that's something too <laughs> that's that's a character detail it is really just like that man went through 25 years of being the most paced bland man on the planet and then woke up and was just like, you know what? I'm just going to be really annoying. That's yeah. all I've got now. Wow. So you find Islam annoying. That's interesting. I find anybody who converts <laughs> religion, any religion <laughs> late in life. Yeah. It's always just a red flag to me. It is a red flag for sure. But it certainly I, makes him more interesting than he religion. was before. Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, it makes no difference to me. If you are born again into a religion, yeah. I am going to have much, much more suspicion of you than if you're just somebody who grew up religious and that's all you know. Yeah, something, something weird is usually going on there. But it is interesting. Yeah, I found that out. There was like some video he was doing a podcast where he was like, talking about how important islam was to him yeah he's he's a muslim Weird. who knew no indeed all right that brings us to a woman's straw wipe out marina rodriguez or marina rodriguez verna janjaroba and um this feels like it's just going to be verna janjaroba's wall again yeah 
Uh, she has definitely improved. The, you know, she's another fighter who I think she got humiliated by Mackenzie Dern. Really? Mm-hmm. And did did the right thing and actually just went and got better. You know? Yeah. She sat down and really started, oh, I should learn how to strike fundamentally enough to be part of my wrestling and grappling. She at least looked like she, like, if nothing else, seriously upped the amount of striking sparring she was doing. Yeah. Because she just came in looking a lot meaner and a lot less concerned about getting hit. Yeah. Like, she just added some gym wars to her diet, which is not a bad thing. People talk... Uh, people have a lot of concerns about hard sparring. For most fighters, a little hard sparring is absolutely essential. Yeah. You got to know what it feels like to be comfortable in a genuine fist fight. Yeah, I mean, there's just a basic truth. Like, this sport is never going to be healthy for you guys. No, no, of course not. Yeah. You can't do this sport healthily. You have to put yourself in some positions yeah. of taking damage that people are going to be like, wow, that's a really bad idea. And it's like, yeah, well, that's, yeah, you know, you have as, to... As, and as much as people talk about, like, you know, oh, it's working for Max Holloway, Robbie Lawler supposedly didn't do any sparring. First of all, I do kind of, I don't believe it. Yeah, there's a little I, bit of that. I do think that there's whatever they're, they think of as sparring, maybe it means they mean they're not doing hard sparring a lot or whatever. But, like, I've seen enough guys like like James Tony, for example. That dude only sparred. Yeah. That was like his whole training regimen was sparring with people. And he had an incredibly long and successful career where you could get him completely dead tired and it wouldn't matter. He'd still be really good and ready to counter you and knock you out. So hard sparring is important. It looks to me like more than even becoming like super technical, Verna Jandaroba just spent some time in the gym learning to be mean and get comfortable with people who were trying to hurt her. Yeah. And it, it made a difference. It's made a very definite difference. A huge difference. It's just also, she's not fast. And she's yeah. never going to be fast. And she's probably never going to be technical either because learning to strike takes time. It's, you know, it is it is a very difficult skill mm-hmm. to master. And that is always going to mean that there's going to be a wall. You know? And she's got to, I mean, this is a reasonable fight. She can win Marina Rodriguez, much like Charles Jordan, uh, really very similar fighters in some ways is somebody who always gets taken down in the first round always. But she also learns really well from her, the takedowns she gives up. And she becomes much harder to take down as fights go on. Yeah. Uh, she's also not nearly as technical a striker as it she should be from the straight, the straight punches she throws while static yeah. become arm punches when she is in pursuit. Yes. So she's a, she's a, a fighter who you see her, giving getting a chance to just have an even open space exchange like ooh she's really like tight and slick with her strikes she's very much like um Ariane Lipsky in that way mm. where you see her in in isolation in a single moment and you're like oh wow that is a dangerous striker and then you see them pursuing somebody and you're like that what what happened here yeah where 
where did all of your footwork and body control go? Yeah. Because you are now just winging punches from your elbows while running after somebody. Um, not great for, for Rodriguez or for Rodriguez. She doesn't have to pay for it that often, but right. when she does pay, it's a, it can be a seriously high price. Yeah. She's also not in good, as good as she should be at cutting off the cage. Yeah. No, for like I mean, a, what the, the footwork goes away too. You're just running after somebody. Yeah. Um, I still think that she's going to, I, I do not expect her to get submitted by Verna Janjaroba. She's never been submitted before. And she's faced fighters like Carla Esparza and Cynthia Calvillo uh, and Randa Marcos and yeah. Mackenzie Dern, who have seriously good submission games. Yeah. Even Amanda Hibas has a, a great submission game. Um, so I don't think Janjaroba is just going to go out there and insta-tap her. It's also at a high level. It's not usually what Janjaroba does. She usually has to get a lot of control to really work somebody over. Right. So at that point, I think that it's going to be a good competitive first round in a fight that slowly looks more and more like a Marina Rodriguez win as it goes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I have to agree with that with not a whole lot to add. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it just looks like I just don't trust John Janoba to get into the kind of insane exchanges that Rodriguez creates one way or the other. Yeah, and, if, if if Rodriguez is at her worst storming forward, right? John Janoba is at her worst retreating backward. Absolutely, yeah. And as as much as she's gotten way more comfortable with the striking, she is still quite an awkward striker. Yeah, uh, not just going backwards, even like. Uh, she tends to throw herself off balance when she she reaches a lot for her strikes. Yeah, you see, it, it, she's you know if she's throwing an overhand, you feel like you see every joint in her body have to click. Yeah, at each stage, like yeah. oh, there's the hip turning over. Oh, there's the shoulder coming up and turning over. Oh, there's the elbow flaring out and going over, and there's the punch. Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I just, if you think she's not going to get an instant submission, which I agree she won't, then um, the fight's just going to get harder for her as it goes on. It'll be like, um, it'll be like Angela Hill, except like more physically scary. Yeah. You know, I, I can easily see this being like Marina Rodriguez's Amanda Hebush fight where Hebush right. comes out, hits a trip takedown immediately. And you're like, oh, wow, she's doing pretty good. And then comes out in round two and tries to storm her and just gets knocked out. Right. Agreed. Odds on the bout. Rodriguez is the favorite. Pretty tight odds. So open at minus 190 is currently up to minus uh, 128. And Janjarob opened at plus 169, currently down at plus 116. So those odds are getting really close, and I don't really think it's deserved. I mean, I'm I'm willing to be wrong. I was very wrong last week on some, you know, 
does I don't really see he's like Irina Alexeva. Like uh, she's gonna play Stephanie Ager's same game. I don't know why it would be close or Trey Waters, Josh Quinlan. Very I had some moments to be very wrong about some fights. Mm-hmm. But uh this just feels like a very winnable fight for Marina Rodriguez to me. Yeah. All right, that, that drops us down into the early prelims portion of the card. Braxton Smith. Is there ever a man named Braxton Smith who looked less like a man named Braxton Smith? I immediately thought of the great Dwight Muhammad Kawi, who before he converted to Islam was known as Dwight Braxton. Mm. That's the other Braxton I know of, and he was a stout wide, heavily muscled, explosive man. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is what a Braxton looks like. <laughs> yeah, I guess it just, to me it feels very much like a like Zoomer frat name. But Oh, you think so? No, I think I, I know. I, I don't know. I guess maybe it's because I know Dwight Braxton. But maybe, I think it's because you know Dwight Braxton. Because for me, I see Braxton Smith and it's like a Braden or yeah. a Dylan or, you know, a Kyle. Yeah. Kyle, I, I think maybe it's a generational thing. Like those yeah. names maybe were uh, were given to different people, and now they're given to the most annoying, uh, annoying white children on earth. Sure, sure. But he's fighting Parker Porter, and um, yeah, Braxton's like this is the he- squat heavyweight squat off. Yeah. Two heavyweights that look like they were bigger men that just got put, squished. Like somebody just put a palm on the top of their head and just pushed them down. And that's, now, uh, that's Dwight Muhammad Kawi in the chat, okay. by the way. That's yeah. formerly Dwight Braxton. Little tank of a man. Yeah. So you should talk about this one. Cause, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, Dwight Braxton certainly doesn't look like a bad heavyweight signing. They're doing it, by the way, Zane. This is what you wanted from the UFC. Yeah, th- th- this is what I said they should do years ago, and they actually have done it to both to, to middleweight, light heavyweight, and heavyweight. Yeah. And it, it is to good effect. Just sign every dude. Just sign, sign every all. dude that looks like they can win. This is what you shouldn't be doing, and they, they are also doing at – Welterweight, lightweight, featherweight, and bantamweight. Yeah, stop. Like, enough. You have all the good fighters, like enough. Only yeah. sign ones that are clearly very good. But you yeah. can't tell who's going to be good or not anyway at heavyweight and light heavyweight. No. Just sign them. Yeah, just sign them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, I almost said Dwight Braxton. Um, Braxton Smith um, certainly doesn't look like the worst guy of this mold that they've picked up. Sure. He's super inexperienced, so it's difficult yeah. to know. Um difficult to know exactly how good he is mm-hmm. but he's he's one of these little squat dudes who is like surprisingly agile and flexible yeah we've seen him i'm trying to remember which fight it was where he cody beck like his first pro win head kick knockout mm-hmm. the dude's like 280 pounds and like five six by the looks of him and he's out here just flicking up really natural looking head kicks. Um, he's very powerful, obviously he's that's it. Yeah. I mean, the dude is, if you took Michelle Prezeris, Prezeris, and you just like put a bike, bicycle pump in his mouth, 
you'd end up with Braxton Smith. And presumably you do whatever surgical procedure there is to remove the grappling part of his brain. Because yeah. that's the thing that Preserve is actually good at. No, I, I'm just saying in terms of body shape. Pure physicality, yeah. It Infl- is inflated Preserve-ish. It is just, this man is literally 90% bicep. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a classic heavyweight signing. He keeps just like KOing other bad regional heavyweights in the first round. Yep. So like one part of me says, yeah, like if he can't do that to Parker Porter, he's almost certainly going to lose. Sure. Parker Porter Porter is is one of our favorite guys who we like to root for because he's absolutely irredeemably poorly suited to his division and is just trying to make it work through skill and determination. Yeah, he's not really durable enough. Um, he's not fast or athletic in any measure. All he has really is uh, is good conditioning and like reasonably good boxing. Yeah, he can, um, if he can live behind a jab without getting knocked out, he can right. beat a lot of much bigger, more durable, stronger men. So that's the thing. It's a it's a toss up between does. Braxton Smith KO him. Yep. Like in the first round. Yep. Or does he either completely fail or only come close to delivering that and then get overwhelmed late? Um, completely even sight unseen, just on the basis that this dude did lose his pro debut to Chase Sherman, and he doesn't look like a fighter who's gotten significantly better over the course of his brief uh, six fight pro career. Yeah. I'm going to take Parker Porter, but there is every chance that he just KOs Parker instantly because that's what he does. Yeah, the the Chase Sherman loss is very troubling because Chase does tend to lose to everybody that he doesn't have a serious that he to to everybody that he doesn't have a serious advantage over. It was, I should point out, according to the topology, way back in 2014. Yeah, it was very likely use. The dude was not taking MMA very seriously. He has now all of the wins he's gotten yeah, have basically come in the, years off of MMA. Yeah. Which this being MMA is probably going to mean like prison or something. Who knows? Who knows? Well, uh, that that can't be true because Dwight Brackton, I'm pretty sure, changed his name in prison. OK, there we go. So he should be called. Maybe this is Dwight Braxton. He should be called like Yusuf Muhammad Smith by this yeah. point. There's no way he's been in prison. OK. By the law of Braxton's, but I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Braxton Smith. Yeah, um, why not? It's it, Parker Porter. One of the things you can look over his resume and see pretty clearly, unfortunately, is that um, all the he guys gets slept that, in the first all, round. <laughs> there's that he gets slept in the first round, and all the guys he beats don't punch hard. That's true. You know what? I'm gonna pick uh, Braxton Smith as well. Yeah, the guy Chase Sherman, Josh Parisian, Alan Bado, Dearly Broenstrup. They're all like the guys he's beating are guys that aren't power punching heavyweights. They are volume, you know, trying to finesse a volume game at heavyweight. Yeah. The fact remains, if he doesn't KO in the first round, he's almost certainly going to lose, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No question. But Braxton Smith punches really hard. So I'm just going to pick him to beat Parker Porter because there's no way Parker Porter can have a fight where he doesn't get hit because 
he's he's not foot fa- he's not fast enough on his feet for that. Yeah. It's such a cool skill set to have, just hitting really hard. It is. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> That's it. You just like never get better. <laughs> you just hit really hard and you just make a career out of it. Braxton Smith opened at plus 124. He's currently sitting at plus 149. Parker Porter opened at minus 137 and is currently at minus 167. Look, I love Parker Porter. I do not know that that is a wise use of gambling funds. (laughs) Well, bit of an oxymoron there anyway. Sure, sure. I'm just saying that like... I don't, you know, chasing Parker Porter at at favorite odds. <sighs> I'm, Braxton Smith is nobody's idea of a good technical heavyweight, but this is not the division for good technique. No, no. Justin Taffa just went out there and we had Parker Porter looking like, oh, yeah, he's doing it. He's get, making it happen for like a minute. And yeah. then he just got wrecked. Then Smith, but you know, I don't, I just don't know how much that matters. Mm-hmm. All right. That bit brings us to a middleweight bout Phil Hawes, Ikram Aliskerov. And, um, Hawes is back. He's finally going to do it. He's How gonna many? Res- he's going to resolve his issues. This is such a like Charlie Brown football fight. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Phil Haas is, he is absolutely the eternal hot prospect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's going to be 48 years old. He's a beast athlete, so he's still going to be shockingly fast and powerful. Yep. And he's still going to be exactly where he is, like at the bottom of the middle of the division, just <laughs> getting like, getting a little momentum and then getting his clock cleaned. Who, who, who is it? That's, th- this is how I know that I've gotten truly old watching this sport. Because I realized that I had just forgotten this, this comparison I'm going to make that dates me horribly. And so uh-huh. forgetting it and then making it anyway, the ultimate old man move. He's really our modern Sokaju. Mm. You mm. know? Where Sokaju just for forever would have these moments where he would just wreck some dude and you're like, oh my God. Yeah. This man is he is an elite class athlete. And then yeah. he'd have like four fights of just getting absolutely beat to hell yeah. by any slightly class fighter. Yeah, there's a lot of these dudes. Get your Melvin Gillards. Yeah. Your Michael Johnsons, etc. Yeah. The, the the problem with Haas, uh, in his own particular version of being this guy, is that he keeps trying to find ways to set it and forget it in combat sports. And I don't think that's really something, especially not in MMA. It just doesn't work that way. What do you what do you mean set it and forget it? I mean he keeps trying to have to to find ways where he doesn't have to think about the fight he's having. Mm. He is trying to create fights where if he just does something for fifteen minutes, he will win. 
Uh, yeah, I think that's just how maybe that's just how his brain works. Like, yeah, I think it's just how his brain works. I think it's, you know, it's truly not, unfortunate. He's it's not, not somebody a, who's going to be out there flowing and like, you know, sort of riding the current of the exchanges. He is flowing. It's just he's flowing without thinking about what his opponent is doing at all. Yeah, that Dennis Bermudez flow. Yeah, where, you know, you see him against somebody who can't really compete with him, like Deron Wynn. Yeah. And it, Phil Haas is all flow in a fight like that. You know, he is just out there doing his thing, stepping into the pocket with elbows, going for the same little, you know, and just filling volume. And it works. And it works perfectly. And it just is like a dominant tidal wave. And you see him doing the exact same thing with Chris Curtis. And it works for like three minutes. And then Chris Curtis is like, okay, well, now that you're stepping in like this all the time and you're not really thinking about it, mm-hmm. what if I just meet you with this hook? Yep. Okay. That's enough information. Time to do something about it. And that's when it goes wrong for Phil. Yeah. The, the Lindsay fight is kind of a write off because it may have, it may have gone the, the Chris Curtis route. Uh, we don't, we'll never know, but it's pretty sh- clear that Haas just, wrecked his knee about uh in the first minute and then was in survival mode for the next yeah i mean i think there's every possibility he would have lost anyway yeah i just it, think delizzi's super tough he keeps wanging that right hand no matter what Hall's just gets get, he just gets caught eventually and yeah he's just he's, if he's not on. if he's not like so much stronger and or bigger than you that he can just shut you out of the fight to survive then it, it he can't survive which uh, I don't know what to think about this Alaskarov fight because mm-hmm. Alaskarov is he is very much your classic middleweight I do one thing well and nothing else like he's working on some of the Sambo striking of like oh I'll jump in with good timing and throw a couple of hard shots mm-hmm. but if he's pre- presented with any problems in the striking realm it, it his striking game goes away entirely and he becomes purely a shot wrestler and is he a good enough shot wrestler to just out wrestle phil haas it's not something that really works against phil haas right so then it becomes a question of like how how much can alaskarov see and time the information he's going to be getting out of a very uh, volume-focused, pressure, uh, high-output Phil Haas. Can he turn that into a crushing win? Or does he get knocked out the way he did against Hamzat Chemaev? And I don't really know. Uh, it's certainly not a great sign to me that he couldn't knock out Nishan Burrell. Yeah. Or, you know, put him away that he just had to settle for a decision. And it's not a great sign to me either that his submission game is mostly Kimura's. Like, that is such a you don't know how to grapple strongman sub to be used outside of heavyweight, you know? How many dudes win by Kimura outside of the heavyweight division? 
Not a lot. I mean, a Kimura is a very... It's a very useful technique. It's a Kimura great for, for technique. Right. Kimura for grapplers is a bit like a front headlock for wrestlers. It's like, it's a uh, a branching out point for a lot of sure positional moves and other attacks. But when oh. I see a guy with three Kimura submissions on his record, yeah, I'm then wondering, like, what are you using this to branch out? Yeah. Or are you leaning on it as like, oh, this is my go-to submission? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if it's, the, if it's there, you take it. I, I don't know what to take from that. I mean, like, I, we when I see a lot of fighters, I guess what I would say is when I see fighters use it to transition a lot, it seems like a really good idea. And when I see fighters try to crank on it to finish fights a lot, it seems like it ends up being a pretty useless expenditure of energy that ends up with them eventually losing their grappling position. Could be. So, yeah. I worry about it a little bit. Yeah. P- part of that, I think, is like uh, uh, a lot of MMA guys just don't actually have super precise technique. Yeah. In a lot of phases. And there is like a there is an art form to actually finishing a Kimura. Yeah, of course. You have to get a particular uh, you have to shorten up your grip in a particular way. You have to get a particular angle of the arm. A lot of guys who go for Kimuras and Americanas and MMA, and this is why they're strongman submissions to us is because they just get the grip on and just start cranking. Yeah. Um, it is the, also one of those things. I, I've said that to, to jujitsu people and they get really like, Oh no, no, it's not. And then like, you t- you find the guy whose favorite sub is is a Kimura, right? Who's ju- who does jujitsu, and they're always two hundred and sixty pounds. That's true. That's true. <laughs> it, that's true. Yeah. You know, it's a, it is it really is a favorite <laughs> for big strong guys who are going to lay on top of you and absolutely just wreck you with top pressure. Yeah, that's true. I think it it ties into that game one way or the other for sure. Yeah. Um, man. I guess I'm gonna go with the hype. I hate to do it with Alaskarov. The assumption that his timing and is gonna be enough to just find a moment and his toughness will be enough to keep him there to find the moment. Yeah. But hot like if ha- if I didn't feel like Haas is just so mindless in his approach, right? I this is a very you know a guy who just wrestles when push comes to shove does not seem made to beat him at all. No, no, not really. I mean, it's not the typical way Phil Haas loses. The the other thing though is that. Um, I mean, I, I, clearly, I think Alaskarov is a pretty good and resourceful takedown artist. Mm-hmm. Um, he also, like, he has a very pressure-centric style. And that is the other thing that I just don't think Phil Halls will deal well with. Yeah. Like, if you are unafraid about tying up with Phil Halls, you don't care that he's strong because you have complete faith in your grappling game. Um then like you're just going to come at him and that is certainly a way to break the thin veneer of the Phil Hall's flow state. Yeah. When you're just like, uh, okay, well I also don't care what you're doing and I actually, <laughs> you know, I'm just going to walk into you 
and grab a hold of you and make you fight. I, I don't know. I, I feel pretty okay, actually, about picking Alice Garov. I just, Phil Halls just doesn't have it, man. Like, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is it, all the tools are there. He's, he's even become a much better striker. The, the striking is there. The wrestling is there. The physicality yeah. is there. The but speed he's become is there. Like the a, power is there. A, a heavy bag striker, like a Padman striker. Like he just, when the fight, whether it's an entry into, the problem is, is that it's most of the guys he fights who the advantage they have over him is their striking. Yeah. That's not to say that it's impossible to beat Phil Hall's elsewhere like phil sure. halls when he has resorted to like wrestling people he kind of just holds them against the fence yeah his wrestling i i did you notice when i said striking wrestling physicality yeah i did not i did not go into jujitsu <laughs> right the, the the grappling game has never uh i think also probably just because of the sort of mindlessness of his game right like grappling really good jujitsu is very much a flow of force of, of forking decisions and forcing decision making. And if you're just in pure, like mindless, I'm going to get to a position and just push on it. Yeah. You're never going to, you, you're not going to open up opportunities. Yeah. It just doesn't look like a matchup where Phil Halls is going to get to get comfortable at any point And you know, when he when he does succeed in like overwhelming somebody, it's usually early because he's he starts with <laughs> for some reason he starts pretty comfortable. Yeah. Like he, he is just maybe each time he gets KO'd, he just forgets the way he go the way he works best is when he's just not thinking. Right, yeah. You know, it's just And he's gonna have to think. I I think that's the main problem is uh, Alice Karov is going to make him respond and react because he is a very pressuring, single minded kind of fighter. So yeah. I'm gonna pick him. I hate to do it, but gotta happen. Alaskarov is the favorite here open at minus three oh nine, is currently up at minus one eighty nine. Phil Haas opened at my plus 261 is currently at plus 167. I don't mind seeing the line close because Phil Haas, like I really do think his game is just, it's gotten better and better. But it is one of those things where like it would have to become so good over time to cover up the problem. Yes. You know, it would have to be really, truly special for him to get to a point where somebody like Alex, you know, Pereira wouldn't just be like, okay, yeah, you're doing really well. And here's just one left hook and you didn't even think about it. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right that like the ways in which he has gotten better are essentially are are ultimately just a bandaid. Cause like the problem for Phil Halls is that he gets too tense and he gets caught by surprise way too often and doesn't see strikes coming at him. Yeah, And it doesn't matter how much better you get at combination punching. Like at some point that you're just not going to finish the dude. He's still going to be there. And he's, you just, he's always going to find a way to surprise you. Yeah. He has not solved his problem. He's gotten better around the problem. Yeah. But if, if the problem is not thinking about what might happen, he hasn't thought about the fact that not thinking is his problem, right? Yeah. That he hasn't addressed it. Well, that just might be the way, like you say, it's just the way his brain works. I don't even know if you could fix that. I don't know. Yeah. Because when he does, like, the other way that he gets, like, put out and, like, in bad spots and looks desperate is, I think, 
when he gets caught and then he realizes, oh, I've got to start thinking about this person. Right. And then and then everything is just nothing flows. Nothing works. Right. Everything just falls apart because him thinking actively about the fight is him not present in the fight at all. Yep. <clears throat> so yeah, it's, it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. I think you're right. Uh, that brings us to a flyweight bout. Rafael Estevam, Zhalgas Zhumagulov. Zhumagulov's back. He's back. He said he was retired. He wanted to get released and quit his contract so that he could go sign with uh, Chechen warlord uh, Ramzan Kadarov's promotion. Mm, great. And the UFC was like, no, actually, you still have fights left if you're going to keep fighting. And so now he's back. Okay. Well, that's too bad. There's, yeah. uh, there's many details in that story that are too bad. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, I, he, there are a couple of fighters who appear to be in that position. And I wouldn't even be surprised if uh, Hamzat Shemaev ends up being one of them as well. Right. Yeah. Um, I think Katarov is throwing some serious money at these guys yeah. to try and recover prestige into his promotion his his russian mma promotion yeah and um that's one way to overcome the uh the death of most mma promotions which is like way overspending mm -hmm. uh, and like getting getting attracting talent by offering more money than you can afford <laughs> like being a warlord yeah wow you know pretty good position yeah. to be in if that's the <laughs> if that's the achilles heel of most promotions it is um yeah, um, the, uh, the the tricky thing is, what was I going to say? Why am I distracted? Oh, yeah, maybe uh, Ramzan Kadarov will have Dana White assassinated. <laughs> if he, like, keeps a no. bunch of the guys that he wants on contract. He already got pissed at him um, for allowing what he saw as, like, bad judging or bad uh, officiating. True, but I, like, I How think... dare you? You have dishonored the sport of MMA, Dana White. <laughs> The big draw for Katarov is that the UFC needs to be super prestigious and stay super prestigious so right. that they can send fighters there to gain prestige and then take them back. And yeah, have that's true. World-class former UFC fighters now fighting in this other or world-class organization. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's like signing Cristiano Ronaldo to some Saudi soccer team or whatever it is he signed up to do. Yeah, where he's fighting in some like, you know, C league on the international scale, but they get Cristiano Ronaldo, or you know, like we had David Beckham signed for the Los Angeles Galaxy in MLS when uh -huh. MLS was much. It's become better now, but when it was sure. still very much like fourth tier soccer. Yeah, that's where a lot of old uh, like European players would go. I still recall. Yep. Uh, Cincinnati FC's game with the Chicago Fire and Chicago Fire had uh, Schweinsteiger on their team. Mm -hmm. Very good, but past his prime player from uh, Byron München. Yep. So Katarov is always going to love the UFC and need the UFC to be top shelf because, you know, the, the, the draw for him is bringing, you know, it would be to get to get somebody like uh, um, uh, damn it now I've uh, Boris Kamzat Shemaev to get him to win a title 
and then yeah. like take the title back to. Yeah, you're right. You're right about you that. Know. Anyway, the thing with uh, Zhumagulov, whatever the circumstances around him continuing to be a UFC fighter, the, the reason we were um, depressed when he retired is he seems to be getting better. He was getting clearly better with yeah. each and every fight. And the last one really seemed like he should have won. Mm-hmm. So it's like he got didn't he get fouled like three times? He got poked in the eye. Yeah. Need, uh, bunch of, need, need Charles like, Johnson in the groin as well. Yeah, he got him back. He had that coming. Uh, <laughs> but a bunch of stuff went wrong. It was a fight where he he comported himself super well. It seemed like he should have gotten the decision, and then he didn't, and then he retired winless, basically, in the UFC, despite clearly having improved with each loss. Yep. And now he's in this unfortunate position where um, he's fighting a guy who basically doesn't fight like any of the dudes that he was putting in those good performances against. Yeah, that's the difficulty for me of 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 uh, really of trying to figure this matchup out. That well, and also not only does he not fight like any of the guys he was putting in performances against, but he fights really well. He's he seems to be very good. Yeah, Rafael Estevam seems or Rafael Estevam seems like he is just a really solidly well put together fighter out of the very classic. Still very functional, Nova Uniao style. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it just kind of seems like something that works. Yeah. He's like a solid sort of like crashing counterpuncher who really, really just wants to take you down mm-hmm. and crush you on the floor. Like for yeah. a Nova Uniao guy, he looks a lot more like the sort of Dagestani new generation Russian grappler fighters. Yeah, I mean, it's like building on um, who was the guy who was second banana to Jose Aldo? Hakran Diaz? Yeah, Hakran Diaz. Yeah, you he's know. way more aggressive than Hakran Diaz. Yeah, oh, yeah. It, 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 it's, it's the 2.0 build on that model. For sure. Um, he has a, yeah, like a really solid takedown game. Novi now has always had great wrestlers one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Again, yeah, he, he he can hit clean doubles. He can hit singles. He body locks people and just wrenches them around and trips them and foot sweeps them. And, and what really he's really confident pressure, like walk-in striking game too, where it's yeah. just like oh, everything's tight, everything's fast. And then what Vin- he's really, really good at is getting to either classically like dominant grappling positions. Mm-hmm. He, he's... he's um, this is, I guess, where he breaks from the Dagestani. He's like, he will take full mount <laughs> yeah. and beat somebody up, posturing up in mount. That's not as common in the modern MMA meta. But he will also go in those sort of like three-quarter mount, uh, half three-quarter guard um, positions where you're just sort of like pinning the fighter's hips to the ground. You're sort of between one full position and the other. You've got an arm tied up, and he just crushes people with elbows and hammer fists. Uh, and breaks them with ground and pound. Um, and if that forces them to give up a submission, he will take it and rip the dude's arm off or whatever. If not, he will just spend an entire fight crushing somebody from top position. Yep. So it, it, it's, it, I do feel bad for Jalga Jumagulov because yeah. right. he's been way more aggressive and assertive with his striking. He's put combinations together. He's been hitting everybody to the body really hard. Um, and it's not like certain that that massive takedown threat 
combined with like a what looks like a, a pretty constant refusal to fight off the back foot. Mm-hmm. It's not certain that that's gonna like completely break the style Jumagulov has been developing. No, but you gotta think that like just getting one takedown is gonna put a hitch in his like aggressive come forward style that he has been uh that he's been working towards and having to worry about that and and the fact that estevam is just one of these fighters like one takedown might not even just be losing the round it might just be losing the fight like he's a super aggressive dominant top position grappler yeah the other thing too uh i don't have a lot to add to that but the other thing that's really giving me pause with jumakulov is that he seems to be getting to a point where he has improved technically, mm-hmm. but the mental side of his fight game is kind of slipping away. Where, you know, like, not only is he was he talking about retirement and there's this whole other specter looming over him that I think is, you know, rather unfortunate, but... Like, he just got so... He's been getting so frustrated in his fights. Yeah. And, you know, the the Charles Johnson fight with the fouls, it's like, yeah, I get it. You're getting fouled. It's going to be frustrating. But I really worry about somebody, uh, about fighters, when they start to be like... When they start to be talking to the ref and when they start to get, like, really chippy about the fouls. Because... Yeah, that can go both ways. I've seen guys who do that. I've seen not to the second James Tony reference. He was a dude who never, ever spoke to the ref, would just get fouled and was just completely focused on continuing to fight through it no matter what. Yeah. I've also seen plenty of good fighters who are like really annoying and I, I, get really saying... mad and frustrated. And some people yeah. are comfortable fighting in that state. Sure. But I, I, the, the thing for me is when it's an evolution, that's what I worry about. That oh that he did not used to exhibit that yeah like that's, when, that's like J- fair like JDS yeah yeah you yeah. look at JDS in the prime of his career he did not give a shit if you poked him in the eye right or need him in the groin or whatever he was focused on getting back to the fight yeah. and keeping things going it became like a a way to like vicariously express your frustration with you're not performing as you hope you were. Exactly. Yeah, that could be a thing. So I'm a little worried about that with Juma Gulov as well. And it just, you add that because, you know, it could be that maybe he's a good enough wrestler count and counter wrestler that Estevan won't get him down. And then this becomes a battle of like, can Juma Gulov set a pace that Estevan has never seen before mm-hmm. with his improved volume striking it's possible you know uh Jumagula, the level of athlete at flyweight in the ufc which jumagulov is right in the middle of is it's going to be higher than the the level at which estevam has been competing mm-hmm. that's true these guys scramble better they are harder to get positions on yada 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 yeah and, jumagulov is a super hard scrambler and he's also just yep, built like a bowling ball exactly so that is possible. Um, but you take these external factors into account. The fact that Jumagulov has not been able to turn his volume into winning. He has not been able to find the consistency 
of form in the style he's trying to build to convince judges that he's doing the doing enough. You put that all together and I got to pick against him. Yeah. You know, it's a shame. Yeah. But Esteban looks good. So, you know, if you're going to sacrifice the, 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 uh, the old prospect to the new prospect, Esteban seems like the kind of fighter that I'm happy to see, get that opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, In a sea of uh, nonsense signings just made for fight night filler. Esteban is like a, Seems like a the kind of guy they should be signing in these lower weight classes. Yeah, exactly. He looks very solid. Uh, he opened at about minus one fifty and is currently at about minus one eighty five. And Jumagulov opened at plus one thirty and is currently up at plus one sixty five, one fifty five in that area. Um. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a debut for Estevam, so you can't, you don't want to see him pushed out too far. Jumagulov mm-hmm. uh, is a solid vet who has been here before and is much better than his record looks. But I got to, yeah, I got to side with Estevam as the favorite. Mm-hmm. That brings us to a middleweight bout Joseph Holmes, Claudio Ribeiro, and the. The battle of the guy, the, the battle of the guys who did not expect MMA to be this hard. <laughs> that is what this fight is. Yeah. And for one of them, it was a physical gulf that I don't think he knew existed. And for the other, it is a mental gulf that I do not think he knew existed. Yeah. And both of them are having their UFC wake up where. They have suddenly waded out into the pool and the bottom isn't there anymore. And they're a lot further from the edge than they thought they could be. And they're actually not very good swimmers. Yeah. And uh, that actually makes this fight really interesting because they are both very likely to drown. (laughs) 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 Like, Joseph Holmes, we've said this before, he is one of the most physically awkward fighters I've seen in the UFC in a long time. He just does not uh, have natural coordination at all. And he, I mean, I don't even know that he's that slow, but he can't move fast because he can't arrange his body to move quickly. Humbersome, yeah. Just incredibly cumbersome. Always off balance, even when he's on balance. And, um, you know, when when somebody can't take advantage of that themselves, when they are also not athletic, he does pretty well because he fights really hard. And he has a knack for violent opportunism. So, you know, somebody like Alan Amadovsky, who's just a brawler who can't control anything. Mm-hmm. Holmes got to a rear naked choke and choked him out quickly. Regional dudes who are also low-level athletes, he gets finishes almost pretty much every time. Yeah, he even he even had a bit of a uh, Neil Magny effect on Jun Young Park for a minute. Where it was, yeah. Park was not like conquer him quite as easily as anyone expected because he's big. That was kind of it. Yeah. But once Park figured it out. Right. It was just like, oh, man, this is just. 
there is no resistance here the moment you find the angle in. Yeah, and you could see that Holmes was was like breaking too yeah. from it. Like he just is not he didn't know what to do when somebody was actually able to more through technique than physicality, but still functionally overpower him. Yeah. And then on the flip side, Claudio Ribeiro, he's one of those dudes. He, you know, he is starting at the point that Michelle Pereira was when he got to the UFC. But Pereira had done it much longer with much more fights. Mm-hmm. So the ability for him to click into a comfortable place was much easier to find. Like Pereira was just kind of waiting for the motivation to be good. He'd fought for years as the giant super athlete who could do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and lost many times with that. But suddenly he got to the UFC where he had actual stakes and he got humiliated. And he was like, oh, you know, I should just fight better. Mm -hmm. And he did because he'd been fighting for years and he had been fighting like 30 fights already. So all of the training and all the time was there. Was just the motivation of like, oh, you know, actually, I, ha- I get paid really well if I win. I should actually try winning, uh, and not lose to uh, a featherweight on an all-you-can-eat buffet diet. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't know how I don't know how Claudio Ribeiro gets there. He's very dangerous. He's very powerful, very fast. But, like, he faced Abdul Razak Al-Hassan, and Al-Hassan just went out there and, like, held on to him for a couple minutes. And it was just like, oh, God, what do I do now? Right. And then he got knocked out. (laughs) And, um... So who drowns? (laughs) Yeah, like, Holmes might be able to do that. He he might be able to just hold on to Ribeiro and make things ugly and difficult. And It's really all he can. It's really all he can do. Yeah. Um, or he might just get absolutely crushed and lit up by Ribeiro right out of the gate because Ribeiro is just way faster and stronger than and more powerful than him. Yeah. I am going to pick Ribeiro because it's middleweight and we're in the middleweight is the sort of the starting the dividing line where it becomes important to be that guy. Middleweight, light heavyweight, heavyweight is where it starts to be more and more like, Oh, you just being really athletic will benefit you nine times out of 10. But middleweight is also just the division for weird dudes. And Joseph Holmes is absolutely a weird dude. Yeah, so, weird weird specialists is usually the Yeah, and he's not a specialist, which is why I'm picking Ribeiro. Well, he is. I mean, he's not a specialist in the sense of Technic- being shockingly Technic- good at his phase, but he is like permanently backed into the corner of only being able to win fights one way. <laughs> so Yeah, that's true. I, I, I think I'll take I'll take Hibero too. I mean, I, it's very possible that Holmes will just get to like body locks and tire Hibero out, and you know. But the the one thing that gives me da- gives me pause is that the path Abdul uh, Razak Al Hassan had to take to get to those positions was to really confidently pressure Hibero. Yeah, and that is something I have never seen Joseph Holmes do. He tries, but then he's just so awkward that like. He just gets nailed. Between stepping in and getting hit really hard and then having to figure it out again. Yeah. 
So. But these are two really one-dimensional. Yeah, this is. I mean, this limited is a, fighters. a core middleweight fight. This is what happens when you're, like I say, middleweight, light heavyweight, heavyweight. Just sign everybody, see what shakes out. But this, you get guys like this. Yeah, I'll, I'll take Ibero too. But I could easily see this going either way. Neither guy is a complete fighter, or even close enough for the <laughs> the usual middleweight standard. Really. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, I don't expect either guy to be. Uh, Ribeiro has the the potential to just like he's got the athleticism that if right. you know if he can hit a switch at some point, he could be a much better fighter. Right. Holmes does not have that potential. He's a lot more natural than Holmes. Yeah, Holmes is going to everything he every win he gets is going to be through extremely hard work, and uh, they're all going to be very difficult to come by. Like Bilal Muhammad is a much more natural athlete than Joseph Holmes by a long way. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Holmes opened at plus 177, is currently down at plus 150. Ribeiro opened at uh, minus 200 and is currently minus 168. Yeah, it should just be very close. Razor thin. No reason to really separate these two. Final fight on the card. Bantamweight bout. Daniel Santos. Johnny Munoz Jr. And um, this is a pretty good matchup. It's a pretty good matchup. Pretty good fight. This this makes a lot of sense to me. Yep. Um, two, Two guys like Daniel Santos is extremely exciting, Mm -hmm. but very much in a... um, Always walking on to you and always, yeah. Always who, he'll throw himself into the same problem a hundred times over. Who's the uh, Almeida? Who, who? What's his first name? The old uh, shooter box guy who looked like a hot prospect and then just started getting oh, yeah, 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 by people. Yeah. Um, Tomas Almeida. Tomas Almeida. Yeah, very much in that mold. Yep. Um, or like a Charles Oliveira without all the grappling kind of mold. Yep. Comes forward, just. Gets, I mean, he was absolutely on the cusp of getting KO'd by John Castaneda. Yep. Who is a respectable puncher, but not the guy you want to be getting KO'd by. Yeah. And um, it was really just that Castaneda exhausted himself trying to finish that allowed Santos to have any chance of coming back and winning that fight, which, to his credit, he did. I mean, he's yeah. perfectly willing to get hurt. It doesn't change anything about the way he fights. He just marches forward and tries to put damage on people. And as that is like a limited form of a pressure fighter, Johnny Munoz Jr. is like a, an equally limited form of an outfighter. Yeah. Just really taught him. He, he really, somebody was like, Hey, you need to have a jab to, to fight in the UFC. Mm -hmm. And his, his learning stopped there. (laughs) I kind of like that about him though. Yeah. I I, I like guys who jab. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not surprised that you do like that. Yeah, that I like, really turns you on. I like guys who jab, and he really, really relies on his jab. If you're going to have me like completely dependent on one thing, why not make it the foundation of all boxing technique? Johnny Munoz is going to start an OnlyFans just for you. <laughs> I mean, what it means is that uh, as people pressure him, he's usually in good position. Like he has yeah. to keep that jab trained on his opponent. He is constantly adjusting his feet, trying to manage his distance. He obviously gets into trouble anytime he tries to go past the jab because yes. 
he like flings his chin straight at his opponent when he throws his right hand. Uh, sometimes somebody's pressuring Hill will just like reach out and try to smother them and like walk at them, which mm-hmm. that can work sometimes. Just control their hands so they can't hit you and gain a little space. Um, and yeah, when he tries to build combinations, his, yeah, his form is just overall pretty messy. But it does all start with a pretty healthy jab. Oh yeah, no, he's got that jab down. And he's going to land that jab really, really clean on Daniel Santos a lot. Mm-hmm. Like he's probably going to hurt him with it. He very easily could. Santos isn't going to see it coming. Uh, you know, it's like if you're if you're doing like light or moderate sparring with somebody, the jab is actually the shot that like hurts you the most mm-hmm. because it's the one that lands clean when you don't expect it. And, and that's going to happen to Santos. Like he's going to walk onto a shitload of jabs. I'm not sure if that isn't enough to win. Yeah. Like, the, I, I don't know. The, the one thing about Munoz is he's... he's got pretty, that jab. He's, <laughs> the one thing about Munoz is he's got that jab. Um, yeah, like, he got knocked out by Tony Gravely. Sure. Um, but otherwise, like, he, he seems pretty difficult to put off of his extremely limited game. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. It, it, I think, I again, I think Castaneda would have crushed Santos if he hadn't gotten too excited and destroyed himself. Sure. Just with very basic outside counter boxing and long range well, boxing. Just pick Johnny Munoz Jr. You know you want to. Fine. I'm doing it. Okay. I think as long as he doesn't, almost the fact that he's completely unimaginative will work in his favor because he's just going to keep plugging away with the thing that's going to keep working. Yeah, I'll pick Daniel Santos. I I think he very easily might lose this fight just getting jabbed in the face. But I don't think that Munoz is... Uh, if he gets pressured hard, I don't think his footwork on the retreat is good enough to keep him just safe off of that. And I think it'll eventually mean that his stance falls apart and his jab falls apart with enough pressure. And I think yeah. Santos can put on enough pressure. I mean, Santos creates clashes where anything could happen and that anything yeah. could be very bad for him or very good for him or both. Yep. So I, I you know, it's definitely a 50, 50 kind of fight. Santos has the game. That's more likely to win him rounds just because it's volume and aggression. Yeah. But, uh, it's not, you know, it's not built so well that I'd lean on it and be like, oh, no, yeah, no. Daniel Santos round winner for for a fight between two guys who are way more limited than any bantamweight should be. Yeah, it's kind of perfectly matched. It is. It is. It's good. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to it. It's a very simple dynamic that is guaranteed to be pretty fun. Santos is the favorite here. Opened at minus 160 is currently down at minus 190. That's too wide for him. Munoz opened at plus 140 and is currently at plus 170. Like, we do have to look at the people who beat Johnny Munoz Jr., and they are two wrestlers. Mm-hmm. And one of them knocked him out immediately, which is a danger, but Daniel Santos is... Is he a big first-round knockout threat? Uh... He's had a couple of spin kick knockouts mm. uh, to the body and spin kicks to the body specifically. He does have a decent spinning back kick, actually. 
he has otherwise n- never knocked anybody out in round one outside of those two spinning back kicks. So yeah, usually round not, one is the round where he's almost getting knocked out. <laughs> yeah. And so for Johnny Munoz, having gotten knocked out in the opening round once by one guy whose wrestling game he had to work, worry about before his striking game. I'm sure in his mind. Yeah. He's otherwise only lost to Nate Manis with a very, you know, uh, wrestling and Mm -hmm. aggressive, like multiple threats to worry about in a way that you don't have from Daniel Santos. Yeah. It's also not like an indictment necessarily to get flash KO'd by Tony Gravely. He's a yeah, no, he's pretty massive puncher. Should be noted, actually. That, that's right. Oh, I forgot about that damn Munoz-Manis fight. It was actually Munoz that spent about out-wrestling Manis and just didn't do any damage otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's hey, right. that might come in handy against Santos. <laughs> it might come, Yeah, it might seriously come in handy. I say, you know what I say? Don't mess around with that. That's all. That's bad for your health. Do the jab. Yeah, the, that Manis fight was actually the the reason, the birth of jabbing Johnny Munoz. Well, good. Just do the jab, Johnny. He lost a fight where he had nine minutes of control and didn't get knocked out. Oh, I remember that. People were kind of pissed at that decision. Yeah. It was a controversial one. Yeah. And then after that, it was like, oh, you know what? I should do more than just hold somebody. Jab is good. Jab is and, great. Jab yeah. is life. Jab is life. All right. Uh, on that note, for those of you who are not Substack subscribers, this is the time to subscribe to our Substack. We are going to jump over here with a little bit of bonus content in the middle here in a minute, just purely for our loyal Substack subscribers. But otherwise, you can find me on Twitter at Zane Simon and find Connor on Twitter at Boxing Bush and find our Substack at Bloody Elbow Podcasts. Uh, or over at Bloody Old Podcasts on Substack. So thank you, everyone, and we'll uh, see you in just a minute. To access the bonus content of this show, you must be a paid subscriber. To do that, go to bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com and subscribe today. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Podcast Network production. Subscribe at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com. Give us your email and receive notifications when your favorite shows drop straight into your inbox. We're also found on a wide variety of podcast outlets, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, iHeartRadio, SiriusXM, Pandora, TuneIn Radio, Overcast, Google Podcasts, Music B, RSS Radio, IMDB, and now also found in your app store on apps such as Downcast, the podcast app, iCatcher, Podcruncher, Podbean, and more. Just search for Bloody Elbow Podcast and you will get brand new shows throughout the week, including the Care Don't Care Podcast, the Level Change Podcast, the Hey Not The Face Podcast, the MMA Vivisection Main Card and Prelims UFC Preview Shows, the 6th Round Post-Fight Show, Crooklyn's Corner, The 6th Round Retro, The Show Money Podcast, The MMA Depressed Us, Exclusive Fighter Interviews, and The Return of the MMA Bunker.